Welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Today, we've got a really awesome episode planned out for you. We're going to be talking about tuberculosis. This is going to be a really fun episode. Zach, you pumped up, man? Yeah, tuberculosis. Oh, my God. (laughs) Hey, we're in a good mood today. We're really happy to be doing this podcast. It's going to be fun. But remember, ninjanerd.org, everyone. Go check it out. Grab your membership, please. It helps us. It, maybe it should help you as well. Get some notes, some illustrations, follow along and learn something new. But today, tuberculosis, we're going to have a lot of fun. The first thing, Zach, I want you to go ahead and start us, start this podcast off telling our listeners about the following. I want to know all about the pathophysiology and the risk factors for TB. Absolutely. So TB is something that I don't think that you're going to probably see that often. Um, however, it is something that you might see very often on your board exam. So it's very important to kind of really comprehend. Plus, also, I think when we get into a lot of, you know, you're really going to need to know some of the screening tests that a lot of us get whenever we go to get a job, which is that purifying protein derivative or the tuberculosis skin test or the mouth tongues test. There's a bunch of different names, but there's a lot of things that we should know about TB as in the sense of prevention and being able to diagnose some of them, as well as really understanding what you need to know for your exam. So first thing, tuberculosis, it's caused by a bacteria called mycobacterium tuberculosis. When someone inhales or they're exposed to this particular tuberculosis bacteria, it gets into the airways. And when it gets down to those little alveoli, it, expo- it gets exposed to macrophages. And macrophages will just eat those up. When they eat them up, they put them in this like little vesicle inside them called a phagosome. And then generally what happens is the phagosome, which contains the bacteria, is supposed to combine with the lysosome and break that puppy down. But it doesn't get broken down. And the reason why is that tuberculosis has the ability to produce this thing called a sulfatide, which inhibits the phagosome and the lysosome from fusing. And so that basically allows for the bacteria to thrive and multiply and you know replicate within the macrophage. And that causes these macrophages now to actually have these bacteria within them. And so what happens is they actually start kind of like saying, hey, something right here. And they start releasing lots of cytokines. And these cytokines, what they do is they attract in more macrophages. So release things like interleukin-1, interleukin-6, TNF-alpha. That pulls in lots of T-cells. T-cells start releasing a lot of what's called interferon gamma. That pulls a lot of other macrophages into the area. And what happens is you get like this wall of T-cells and macrophages trying to wall off the bacteria kind of filled, you know, destroyed macrophages, the ones that were actually trying to engulf it. And that actually leads to this thing called a granuloma. Now, what happens is those macrophages that contain the bacteria in them, they start dying off and start undergoing a necrosis type of reaction. And that's usually in the center of this granuloma. And we call that a caseating granuloma that actually begins to form. Now, what happens is these caseating granulomas, they particularly like to form whenever a person first gets exposed to tuberculosis. They love to attack the lower lobes, particularly around like the subpleural region. So they attack like the lower lobes. And then what happens is they can spread via lymph nodes um, to what's called hilar lymph nodes. So you have caseating granulomas in the lower lobes near the actual pleura, and then they can spread to the nearby hilar lymph nodes, and you can get some granulomas there. There's a name for this. So whenever you have the lower lobe subpleural caseating granulomas, that's called a gone focus. And whenever some of that caseating granuloma spreads to the nearby hilar lymph nodes, and it has caseating granulomas there in the hilar lymph nodes, we call that whenever there's a combination of a gone focus and a caseating granuloma in the hilar lymph node, a gone complex. And that's usually what you can see in these patients who get tuberculosis exposure. Now, here's where it's key. 
Once they have that exposure to the tuberculosis, that primary TB, three things can happen. They can either have a strong immune system and can completely clear and destroy that TB from the granuloma. Done. They cleared the infection. The second thing and likely the most common type of event to happen is the immune system is stable enough that it can actually keep the bacteria in these granulomas kind of like dormant, kind of like, you know, shut down for a little bit. They're not actually clearing the infection. They're just keeping the bacteria at bay and it's not causing any further damage to the body. Okay. The second thing or the third thing is that this TB, the bacteria can just keep remaining active and destroying and destroying lung tissue and really causing a lot of nasty types of processes. Now, let's say for whatever reason, all right, and we'll talk about this in just a little bit, patient becomes immunocompromised. They have HIV. They end up having, you know, they get a transplant. They're on immunosuppressive drugs. They get sick. They get really, really stressed. Whatever it may be, they're malnourished. Their immune system drops. Now they're not going to be very good at being able to keep that bacteria at bay or dormant. And then it can reactivate and it can start actually damaging more and more and more lung tissue. If you also don't have an immune system in the first place, guess what? That primary TB infection can just continue to progress and just damage more lung tissue. So the concept here is once you get this gone complex, you can either clear it, keep it at bay, or have progressive damage of the lung tissue. If you become immunocompromised, you can reactivate that dormant TB and cause it to lead to more damage. Now, the second thing that I want you guys to think about here is whenever TB either becomes reactivated from the dormant phase or it continues to cause progressive damage from primary TB, it then goes from the lower lobes to the upper lobes. So then it loves to attack the upper lobes of the lungs where it causes a lot of caseating like necrosis and cavitary lesions of the upper lobes. So you get a lot of these things called fibrocavitary lesions and consolidations of the upper lobes, which are really, really nasty in this disease. Then what can happen is not only will it chew through the lung tissue, it'll get into your bloodstream. When it gets into the bloodstream, it starts spreading everywhere around the body. And it's pretty scary. It can get into the bloodstream and spread all the way to the pericardium of the heart where it can cause pericarditis. It can spread to the kidneys where it can cause pyuria. It can spread to the meninges where it causes meningitis. It can spread to the lumbar vertebrae where it causes POTS disease. It can spread to your long bones and cause osteomyelitis. It can spread to the adrenal glands and cause Addison's disease, which is adrenal failure. It can spread to the liver and cause hepatitis. And on top of that, the other thing that's interesting, it can spread via the lymphatic system and go up into the cervical lymph nodes and cause this big cervical lymph node in the neck called a scrofula. Which is- now, out of all the out of all the medical terms I've heard, scrofula has to take the, the win. That, <laughs> yeah. like, that, I mean, it's a really interesting to, one. Like, yeah, I need to meet the people who come up with these names because I think that we would get along really well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a really interesting name. That's a good one. I, yeah, I, I, almost I like, can't fault you. Almost like a scrotum in the neck or something yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> It sounds that way. <laughs> hey, man, to each their own, right? To each their yeah, own. Yeah, yeah. So I think the big thing to get out from this is that TB can, when you're exposed to it, you can obviously have three things that happen. You can clear it, it can stay dormant, or it can continue to cause damage. If you're immunosuppressed or immunocompromised in any way, it can reactivate that latent one, or it can cause progressive damage. If it damages the lungs, it then goes from the lower lobes to the upper lobes, chews through them, and then spreads from that point into the blood where it can spread all over the, the body and cause miliary TB. 
The question that you need to be asking yourself is, who are those patients who are at high risk of exposures? Once they inhale the TB, they get exposed to the TB, they can have any of these three things happen. They can now have active TB, they could have latent TB, or they could have cleared the TB at some point in time when they were exposed. So who are the people who are risk of, uh, high risk of exposure? Think about healthcare workers because they're exposed to people who have TB. Think about homeless individuals. Think about immigration from areas where there's high kind of like, you know, potential rates of tuberculosis, prison systems, and a big one, IV drug abusers. So this is the people who are at risk of exposure to TB. Now, the big, big thing is that just because you're exposed to TB doesn't mean that you'll develop active TB or latent TB that reactivates. The patient who is at risk of reactivation of latent TB or primary progressive TB is those who are immunocompromised, especially patients who have HIV AIDS, um, IV drug abusers as well diabetics, um, chronic kidney diseases who are on hemodialysis, um, alcohol users, malignancy is a big one, especially if they're going to have some type of like chemotherapeutic regimen, if they're status post-transplant, or they're on immunosuppressive drugs of any kind of nature. Now the immune system doesn't have the ability to keep the bacteria at bay or prevent it from causing further damage. And so those are the people that are at risk of really the nasty effects of TB, Rob. All right, got it. So TB, big thing here, it's going to cause granulomas in the lungs. But really the options that exist for this TB is what? Either it gets killed, all right, you clear the TB, or it plays dead, latent TB, or keep destroying the lungs and then spread that to other organs, as we talked about active TB. In addition to those with HIV or immunosuppression who are at risk of activating the latent TB or letting that TB continue to destroy the lungs. All right, Zach, so next thing, I want to turn the conversation over to how these patients may present, some clinical features of that. Are these patients just coming in and coughing up blood? I, I really hope to God not, since this is like, <laughs> this is airborne. Um, I would, I would I'm, I'm out, I'm checking out. I'm out. <laughs> uh, but, but like, how, how do you go about diagnosing a patient with tuberculosis? So that's a great question. So oftentimes tuberculosis, depending upon what phase it is, regardless, usually it's pretty much asymptomatic, but as you kind of really develop the primary progressive TB or the secondary reactivation TB, then you start getting a lot more lung damage. So obviously looking for some of the cytokine storm that they can get from the, a lot of the inflammation, uh, looking for like fever, night sweats, weight loss. Those are pretty common things. Um, the other things that it can actually cause a lot of inflammation within the lung tissue and consolidation that may trigger a cough, especially looking for hemoptysis, because as the fibrocavitary lesions occur, they're chewing through lung tissue. They can hit some of those bronchial blood vessels, spill that into the actual bronchial system, and then you can cough that up as well. So hemoptysis is definitely something to think about. I think the other thing to think about is whenever you're kind of causing a lot of these problems in the lungs, causing these fibrocavitary lesions and consolidations, you're definitely at risk for pneumonia. So watch out for pneumonia in these patients. They may have potential concerning features of pneumonia. The other thing is that there's a lot of inflammation that occurs near the pleura, and that can increase the capillary permeability of those vessels and lead to pleural effusions. So watch out for that as well. And then the other thing is that it's a cavitary lesion. It can chew through lung tissue. If it chews through lung tissue and it's near the pleura, guess what you can do? Introduce air right into the pleural cavity and create a pneumothorax. So those are some of the things I would watch out for. Oftentimes asymptomatic, but big things to watch out for is the systemic or generalized symptoms, such as fever, night sweats, and weight loss. If it really starts affecting the lungs and causing a lot of consolidations, obviously cough. If it chews through into the bronchial blood vessels, hemoptysis, and watch out for really scary complications such as a pneumo, pleural effusions, as well as pneumonia. 
Alrighty, so patients with TB can either be symptomatic or asymptomatic, but I'm still having a little bit of an issue trying to differentiate really between active or latent TB. How do you really go about doing that, especially if it's pretty subtle? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one of the first things is whenever you have a, a patient who, let's say that you're somewhat concerned that they may have tuberculosis, maybe they're a high risk of TB uh, because of an exposure factor, right? So they're a healthcare worker. This is a very common population that gets tested very frequently. Um, they're homeless, they're, immigrate, uh, immig they're immigrants, uh, prisons, uh, you know, one of the prisoners, or they have IV drug abuse, or they have an immunosuppressive condition of some type. These are patients who are very high risk. And what you want to do is you want to screen them. And often what we do is we do what it's called a TB skin test or a Mantox test or a PPD. There's a lot of different names for it, but what you do is you take a little syringe and you inject a little bit of this thing called tuberculin, which is like some of the proteins that are on the tuberculosis, uh, the mycobacterium tuberculosis. And what it does is it should generate an immune reaction. Right. If they've had a previous TB exposure, because now their immune system is going to be like, hey, I've seen this before. That's definitely something I've seen before. I'm going to mount an immune response and create a little granuloma over the skin where you usually inject this into like the dermis. What happens is, is when you have that reaction, it's going to cause a lot of swelling and induration and redness. The larger and larger the swelling is, that's a more concerning feature because that's an intense immune reaction. That tells me that the patient could be exposed to TB at some point. Here's the thing though, Rob, it doesn't tell me if it's latent. It doesn't tell me if it's active. So it doesn't really tell me that they have one of those two TBs. It just says they possibly had an exposure to TB. So if you check it about 48 to 72 hours after you give that and they have a big old swollen indurated arm, it's important to measure that. So there's particular sizes or thresholds that we consider to be positive in a particular population. So if it's five millimeters or greater, that could actually be positive. So it doesn't sound very big, but it actually is concerning in a patient who is immunosuppressed. So patients who are HIV, they're on immunosuppressive medications at some point, or I think this is a really big one. They just had close contact with an active TB patient. That's extremely scary as well. And if their chest x-ray had an old granuloma, that also would concern me that they probably had some type of like TB at some point in time, or at least an exposure. But I think the big thing is HIV, immunosuppressive patients, and those who had a, just a recent exposure to an active TB patient. If the size is 10 millimeters or more, then you really want to look at the population who are high risk of exposure. So thinking about healthcare workers, this would be positive, homeless individuals, immigrants, prison workers or prisoners, um, and patients who have IV drug abuse. Definitely think about that one as well. So again, big ones to think about 10 millimeters or more. Think about the ones who are at high risk of exposure. So healthcare workers, homeless, immigrants, prisoners, and IV drug abusers. If it's 15 millimeters or more, that implies it's positive for everybody else who is not at high risk of exposure, healthcare workers, homeless, immigrants, prisoners, or IV, uh, prisoners or IV drug abusers, as well as it does not include the HIV immunosuppressed individual or recent contact with an active TB. That's anybody walking around who has none of these particular problems. They're not immunosuppressed and they haven't had any recent high risk of exposure. So that's anybody else. If it is one of those three sizes, depending upon the risk factors we just mentioned, and it is positive, all that tells us is that the patient had an exposure. That does not tell me if they have active or latent TB.
One of the other things I think it's really important to remember is that sometimes you can get what's called a false positive result. And that could be if the patient had some previous vaccine. So it's called the BCG vaccine. Some individuals actually do get this vaccine and then you can't use this test anymore. You actually have to do something called uh, interferon gamma release assay, which tests the levels of interferon gamma. Remember the T cells, they blast out tons of interferon gamma. So it's going to be super elevated. You can also get false negative. So just be careful of that too. Patients may not have an actual immune response against this. Um, so watch out for that in HIV and sarcoidosis. And again, do the interferon gamma release assay for them as well. But that's what I got for at this point. PPD is positive. I just know that they potentially could have latent or active TB. What I need to do is examine the patient. Do they have symptoms, fevers, night sweats, weight loss, cough, hemoptysis, any features of pneumonia, pleural effusions, or a pneumo? If that's the case, I need to immediately get a chest x-ray or a CT scan of the chest immediately, okay, to rule out then is this latent or is this active? When I get my chest x-ray or CT, I really want to evaluate the lungs. I want to look at the lower lobes. Is there like a lower lobe granuloma or consolidation? Because if that's the case, that's a lower lobe granuloma. That could be a primary TB. Is there any type of like gone complex, right? If it's sometimes really fibrous and calcified, that could actually be a healed up gone complex. And that could mean that they probably cleared their infection. That's what's called a ranky complex as well. But what I really want to look for are signs of active infection. So scary, scary signs. So fibrocavitary lesions in the upper lobes, consolidation in the upper lobes. These are definitely very, very fearful signs of active TB. So if I see any kind of fibrocavitary consolidative lesions in the upper lobes, boom that's concerning. It's likely that they have active TB, especially if they're symptomatic. The other thing is look out for miliary TB. This is actually a really scary one as well. It's basically, it's so spread throughout the lungs and it's actually cavitating and starting to work into the systemic circulation. Now, now it's spreading to different organs as well. So look for like these little millet seeds or little tiny nodular lesions in both uh, lung fields as well. Sometimes you can actually see pleural effusions as well or pneumo. So look for those as well to consider potentially testing that patient for tuberculosis. So I think if the PPD is positive, I don't know if it's latent or if it's active. I get the chest X-ray CT. If they have a positive PPD and they have symptoms and their chest X-ray and CT shows fibrocavitary lesions in the upper lobes or consolidations or maybe a TB pleurisy or pneumothorax or anything like that, I'm pretty concerned that they have active TB. And what I'm going to do next is I'm going to get some sputum samples. And I'm going to get from their sputum, I'm going to maybe do a bronchoalveolar lavage or something of that nature. I'm going to get three sputum samples at least eight hours apart, or generally we do it like three days in a row early in the morning. And you suck some of the sputum up. And what you're looking for is to actually pick up tuberculosis bacteria, which is kind of tough to grow in normal like culture medium. And so what we do is we do this with what's called the acid fast bacillus smear, and then we grow it in a particular culture over a long period of time. Now, if those sputum cultures come back positive for the specific tuberculosis bacteria or they do stain appropriately with the acid fast bacillus smear, that's concerning as well for tuberculosis. So that's actually your gold standard like diagnostic test for TB as well. Definitely concerning. And if I really wanted to, and I wanted to take the old bronchi bronch and stick that down the airway, find where the fibrocavitary lesion is and like take a piece of lung tissue. And then if I take that area where the granuloma is and I look at it under the microscope, I may see, guess what? Caseating granulomas. That's also going to help to kind of really solidify the diagnosis. So really think about that with these patients with tuberculosis. All right. Finally, the, the nerds stopped talking here. Uh, <laughs> let me get, let me get a quick sentence in here. <laughs> So in all seriousness, trying to summarize this, because it's, it's very important, trying to figure out whether it's latent TB or active TB, just diagnosis. If it's latent TB, we've got a positive PPD, the patient's asymptomatic, and the chest x-ray CT scan shows no active infection. 
Now for an active TB diagnosis, they have a positive PPD. Their acid fast bacillus smear is positive along with cultures. Also, this patient with active TB, TB they are symptomatic. And then their, their chest x-ray CT scan is going to show 100% active infection. Yeah, 100%. 100%, baby. Cento pacento. All right, sweet. So we've got that kind of diagnosis all wrapped up now. Let's move into the final aspect of this podcast episode, which is the treatment of TB. We need to understand how do we treat these patients? If they're latent, do you even treat them? Absolutely. So I think that's a big thing to talk about. So whether, so regardless of their latent or active, they're still getting treated. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I think it also just depends upon their exposure risk and their risk of infection. So if you have a patient who, you know, they have a positive PPD, they're asymptomatic, their chest X-ray CT scan shows no signs of active infection. You also can remember that this patient could completely have cleared their infection. I think it's important to think about these patients, particularly in the clinical context. So if this patient is an immigrant, or if they're homeless, or they're an IV drug abuser, they have HIV, um, they have diabetes, or chronic kidney disease, or malignancy, or they're immunosuppressed, I would be more likely to treat this patient with particular TB drugs than I would the normal healthy young individual who has a positive PPD, normal chest x-ray, no symptoms. So think about that as well. It's really important to think about the clinical context, the risk of exposure, and the risk of these patients having like an active infection uh, depends upon their level of immune system as well. So really, really think about that, guys. But let's say that I have this patient with latent TB, and I definitely am concerned that they are someone I need to treat. If I'm going to treat them, I'm going to put them on particular tuberculosis therapy. And what that really consists of is one drug is called isoniazid. So isoniazid is a great drug, and usually we do that for about nine months. One of the downsides about isoniazid, though, is that it can really cause B6 deficiency, which can cause a lot of problems like, you know, neuropathy and potentially benzodiazepine refractory like seizures and a lot of other potential issues as well. So I think it's really important to be able to understand that whenever we put someone on isoniazid for nine months, add on some paradoxine or vitamin B6 within that regimen as well. The other thing that you could do if you don't want to do isoniazid for nine months, which most patients don't want to do uh, because of like concern of compliance, we can do something called rifampin. And rifampin is another decent drug that you can do about for four months. So that's another option. If the patient has rip-roaring active TB, so their PPD is positive, their acid fast bacillum smear and cultures are positive, they have symptoms, in other words, they have fever, cough, night sweats, they have weight loss, they have hemoptysis, maybe they have concerns of you know, pleurisy, and, and your chest x-ray CT shows fibrocavitary lesions in the upper lobe with consolidations, and maybe even it's even spread, it's miliary TB at this point. I'm concerned for these patients, so I'm going to put them what's called the RIPE regimen. So that means I'm going to start them on four particular drugs for two months. So I'm going to put them on Rifam. I'm going to put them on isoniazid. I'm going to put them on parazinamide and I'm going to put them on ethambutol. And generally we can do that for at least two months. Okay. If you don't want to use ethambutol, you can switch that up with streptomycin. So again, rifampin, isoniazid, parazinamide, and ethambutol ripe for two months. And remember what I told you, if you put someone on isoniazid, what do you have to add? B6. So add vitamin B6 to that regimen as well. After you do two months of rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol or streptomycin for two months, then you switch over for another four months and do rifampin and isoniazid plus again B6. So again, to repeat that, ripe regimen, rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, ethambutol, or streptomycin, one of the two, for two months. Then after that two months, you switch over to rifampin and isoniazid for four months. Anytime you're on isoniazid, put them on vitamin B6. 
So that is the treatment that I would go through if a patient has latent TB, which we talked about, or active TB, which we talked about. All right, great. Lastly here, Zach, no drug comes without some adverse effects, especially these anti-TB drugs. Can you quickly summarize some of the adverse effects and, and labs were really used to monitor these adverse effects? What are we looking out for with these TB drug regimens? Absolutely. So I think that is a really good point. No drug, you know, comes without a potential adverse effect, especially these ones. They're really, they're really rough, especially rifampin. Uh, when I put someone on rifampin, I would just make sure that you let them know. Um, yes, you may have some body fluids like tears and pee and stuff like that that are going to have kind of a reddish, orangish type of hue to it. So don't freak out and think that you're dying. So I would definitely try to tell your patient that before they find out inadvertently start freaking out. The other thing is I would also be very careful with this drug, especially since patients who have TB are likely to have an immunosuppressive condition such as HIV. When you put patients who have HIV um, on rifampin, make sure that you look at their drug medications because sometimes what can happen is patients who have HIV and they're treating their HIV with NRTIs, that actually gets metabolized by your cytochrome P450 system. Guess what rifampin is? It's a CYP450 inducer. So if it induces the CYP450 system, it metabolizes and breaks down the actual NRTIs very quickly and decreases the dose of the drug in the serum. So that lowers the effectiveness or efficacy of those drugs, which potentially can worsen the HIV of that patient. So make sure you're very, very careful with that. And if you are concerned about that, switch them over to another type of rifamycin, uh, such as rifabutin. That's a pretty common one as well. Um, that I would actually consider as an alternative here. The next one is isoniazid. So isoniazid, be very careful with those LFTs. I would monitor the LFTs because it can cause hepatotoxicity, a little bit of transaminitis. So watch those LFTs, maybe trend those every couple months while they're on them. The other thing is that it can cause a lot of B6 deficiency. And with B6 deficiency, one of the downsides about this is this can cause neuropathy. So look for any kind of pain, put them on B6 for, to prevent this. It also can cause sideroblastic anemia. So watch out for any kind of anemia. Here's the big thing, and I've seen this once, is that sometimes it can actually lead to uh, seizures. So when someone's on isoniazid, they really, really deplete their B6, and it actually leads to the patient not responding to benzodiazepines. So one time I had a patient who came in and they were seizing, 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 and they were getting benzodiazepines, they were getting propofol, they were getting all these AEDs, and they weren't actually improving. And the reason why was, oh, well, we found out that they ended up having isoniazid in one of their drug regimens because they had TB. And actually in that situation there, we had to give them B6. And so again, that's a big one to think about here. The next one is pyrazinamide. Uh, pyrazinamide is another one that you want to watch for any kind of hepatotoxicity. So monitor those LFTs. And I would really be careful if a patient has gout and you don't want to like make that big toe worse. I would actually consider watching out for that because what can happen with pyrazinamide, it can actually increase the uric acid levels and that can really cause more deposition into that big toe. And you're going to end up with a big old sore toe, um, MTP joint. So watch out for any increased risk of gout with pyrazinamide. The next thing is ethambutol. This one's nasty to the optic nerve. It really can agitate that optic nerve and cause optic neuritis. So I would really consider getting like those eye exams on these patients after they've had some type of therapy with ethambutol just because of the risk of optic neuritis. And then lastly, if you decide to switch ethambutol with streptomycin, um, I would consider watching for any kind of ototoxicity. So watch for any changes in hearing as well as nephrotoxicity. Maybe monitor that BMP to look for any change in their BUN and creatinine as well that can happen with this particular drug. So that would really cover the adverse events uh, or adverse effects and labs that you should monitor in these patients with um, these anti-TB drugs. 
All right. Thanks, Zach. That was another awesome episode. Tuberculosis, done. We're going to just keep cruising through these podcasts. They're a lot of fun. But thank you for doing it. Oh, thank you. And uh, engineers, I hope that you guys like this podcast. I hope it made sense. And uh, as always, thank you. Love you. And until next time. Mm-hmm.